One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through safer and smarter movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Today is Friday with friends and I have new friends, Ellen Boder and Jason Gaddis. They are a married couple who are both psychotherapists and take my lit daily. We talk about their own relationship and Jason's development of a relationship school, which I can't wait to take myself. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Welcome, Jason and Ellen. So glad to have you on today. Thank you, Lara. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's like to be here. Well, let's dive right in. I have looked at... Um, some of your stuff. I've met Ellen before in a private, and I'm really blown away with your relationship school program. And I just would love to hear about the origins. I know, it, I think it's fascinating that, you know, Ellen, you have your psychotherapy degree, and then Jason had the experience of <laughs> multiple failed relationships that led him to this place of like, which was super just introspective to be able to say, hey, the common thread here is me. So can you just talk talk through to the listeners, like how you came up with this idea that to, to actually make a school, which I think everybody should go to, by the way. And I think, like you mentioned, I, I think kids should learn because relationships, obviously, are not just uh, with your partner of life, but there's many more relationships as well. Yeah. I mean, it came, obviously it came out of my life experience and then a ton of experience with Ellen here. And it was uh, over leading you know, as a former psychotherapist, I was a psychotherapist many years ago, and I, I got tired of and impatient with people not doing the homework. You know, part of that was probably my my way or whatever. <laughs> and I started then. I started doing groups, men's groups, and I started doing couples groups and relationship practice groups, facilitating them and facilitating yeah. them. And because I I wanted people that were a little more motivated and are willing to actually follow through week to week, and so. The, the groups kept getting longer and longer. And I was like, oh, I don't think 60 days is long enough. And then I went to six months. And then I was like, I think it just needs to be like a full school year. Um, and then it just sort of all came together. And it was like, all right, I'm going to put a group of people through an experiment of nine months and see um, what kind of shifts they have. And it was pretty ri- ridiculous and incredible what happened. It's been amazing. Yeah. 
completely. And that was, so you started off with just men. I mean, before the relationship school sort of brand came about, I was just, I was a dude leading men's groups. Um, and then eventually I, the couples, I started working with couples a lot and primarily the the same issues that would keep coming in week after week. And I was like, okay, I'm going to start to develop a curriculum around this and then mm-hmm. a class eventually in, in groups. So I'm curious when you talked about how you were tired of people not doing the homework, I'm just like in physical therapy, I'm sure in psychotherapy, I, I know that from, from having psychotherapist friends, there's a lot of different philosophies and techniques for practicing. What makes psychotherapy effective, do you think? Yeah, I, I want you to go first. <laughs> I, uh, I think part of it's the client, um, a willingness and a readiness to actually do the homework. I mean, I, I've been a client of physical therapy for years with injuries, and I, I'm a terrible client or patient <laughs> sometimes because I'm like, oh, okay, thanks. And then I, I actually yeah, do these 10 exercises and you're going to get better. And I would never do the exercises, right? So I was, I was that guy. Um, yeah. So I can appreciate that mindset of the client. And then I think on the therapist side, it's the, I would just say it in one word, it's challenge, a willingness to challenge clients uh, because therapy, I think, has a, a rep being overly yin and overly supportive, whereas coaching has sort of more of a rep of being more results-based and challenging. And so uh, I think we like to do a kind of a hybrid where it's, yeah, let's listen and talk about feelings and, and just get our story out or whatever, but let's also actually take some actions that are going to change our life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with all that. And then just to add in integration. Like I think therapy is effective when it's integrative. And so when, when we've really taken in the, you know, the mind, the body, the emotions and put it all together in a way that helps our development go a step further, even just like a little step, but like that, mm-hmm. that the therapist in particular approach is really keeping in mind, like that we're, we're moving somewhere and everything yeah. we're doing is about, um, is based on what just happened and what the next step is. And so, I mean, I'm sure you see in your, I think your work is similar. It's like, yeah, there's a, we're going, we're all, we can continue to grow and develop. And that's kind of what we want to be doing. Yeah. Well, what do you do with the person? Cause I see this a lot. I mean, I've sometimes as a physical therapist, I felt like a therapist, uh, emotional therapist because they're tied together. You know, I, I, I really, I really take, um, offense when people try to separate them like this mind and emotional but state i mean they're so intertwined we know that um but i'm always challenged by the person who has kind of the story in their head about this happened to me and this is where i am and and can't get kind of past this like hamster wheel of repeating that and i've you know i've done my own source of reading of like trauma and all that. Cause I'm like, is it better to say trauma informed yoga? I mean, this is going down a whole tangent, but I really love your opinion about this as, as professionals. And, and there's a part of me that says, well, you're trying you're just labeling something and labeling the person's experience and almost cap kind of capturing them in that state versus acknowledging. So from my reading, what I've read is yes, obviously we need to acknowledge experiences that have traumatized us and, and, and and speak about them and talk about them. But then, you know, the second time you start to talk about it, you're revealing it and you're letting it out. But the third time you're starting to like become more of it. So it's like the touch the wound, but then don't just keep like poking at it. What is your thought on that? Labeling and the best kind of approach to help people 
move past this story of either physical, mental, emotional, sexual trauma. Right. Well, the first thing comes to my mind, I'm curious what comes to yours, Jason, but it's like, are we making, what meaning are we making of it? Are Are we using an experience to just define ourselves and to stay somewhere that's maybe doesn't feel good, but at least feels familiar? We know how to be there. Or, I mean, again, this, I can translate this into, I'm sure, physical therapy as I think about it. But, or are we, are we understanding what happened, integrating what happened in a way that has us make meaning of it to move to another place, like move more fully into ourselves or our life? I mean, I, I feel like that's a huge part of it to not just keep recapitulating the same story and coming to the same conclusion because that's, that's not development. Yeah. That's where people get really stuck. That's where people get stuck. Cause it's sort of like if, if, and if you challenge, it can be touchy how to, how to help someone develop. I'm sure with an injury too, like some people are like, no, my body just won't do that, you know? And, and you want to help expand people's experience of themselves way beyond that because, because we can, because it's possible. And so it can be hard if someone's really scared to, to even consider experiencing the world in another way. Yeah. I like to try to, you know, enroll people into the, the process and a lot. I mean, you can't, let's face it, you can't help someone that doesn't want to be helped. And right. some people are just really identified with their, their, how they want to see it. And yeah. that person's very hard to help. And I, I do my best to not try to help those people. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but if there's a there's a flame of willingness and a, a willingness, like, hey, I, I've been, I'm tired of my story. I'm tired of being stuck here. I'd like to try something different, or you know, help me move through this trauma mm-hmm. or whatever. Then it's like anything's possible. I feel like it's anything's true. possible with someone like that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the difference between a kind of a when I when I get stuck in my victim mindset and uh, no one can kind of help me and I've tried everything and that I'm pretty stuck. And I'm, I I got to look at. I like to challenge people. What are you getting out of that? Uh, which is confronting, and most people don't want to hear that. But if you look closely, it's like they're still getting a lot out of that, and they're not mm-hmm. quite ready to make the shift. And and then you can kind of give permission, like, look, it's okay if you're not ready to change. Call, call me back in a month or two or a year, and let me know when you're a little more motivated. Mm-hmm. So if somebody were to come to you and you didn't know if this was like something they were really attached to, what what is one of the first things you would say? Would you say something like, hey, you know, this happened to you, but you are not it? You know, you don't have to stay in that. Is Are there words that you give to them? Yeah, I mean, I, I like to use the word trauma sometimes, depending on the, the situation. But um, yeah, this tra- you had a traumatic experience happen or you had a, you know, at times a traumatic childhood. Uh, you've lived through that and we need to help you integrate that, as Ellen's saying, and make meaning from that and start to see how it actually catapulted you on this journey into who you are now. And can we look at all the incredible ways in which you've made this hero's journey to be yourself? Mm-hmm. I think when people start to really reframe it um, mm-hmm. and we invite people into a much bigger perspective, it can be really cool. And then yeah. it's like, yeah, if there's trauma specific work to do, it's like, great, go see this kind of practitioner who's, it's all about going slow, getting mm-hmm. present and working through the, the memory in your body so that you can have, your body can have a different experience. Right. Because they do all have to line up. Like the body has to recover from something so that, and then that, that can free up something in the mind or it it can go the other way too. But ultimately, I think when it does come to trauma or really significant events like that, we, we need, everything has to kind of up level to a new understanding. Yeah. Yeah. 
not to put you on the spot with it, but what do you think of the kind of labeling like trauma-informed yoga, trauma-informed movement, trauma-informed therapy? Like, is there an inherent problem with that labeling? Right. It's interesting. I, I haven't, I hadn't thought of it as a, as necessarily like problematic, but I've, as we're talking about it, I can see how it might seem like, well, then some yoga isn't trauma informed. Whereas I've, there's a lot of yoga teachers who feel like we're addressing trauma every class. Like there's trauma on lots of layers of our cellular experience mm-hmm. and the yoga addresses that it's, it is, it is helping us heal. You know, that's what's I think so compelling about it. We don't even have to know the content and we just know we're, we're evolving. And so I think that if it help if it, if it distinguishes like, oh, this therapy's trauma-informed and this isn't, obviously that's not helpful, but some people have, I think it's come from people wanting, I think a more somatic understanding of trauma, like a more comprehensive, holistic, and not victim-blaming experience of trauma. I think trauma hasn't probably been handled well, like much more so in the last 20 years. But before that, I, I think that, you know, if you think about veterans and victims of sexual assault and things like that, we haven't handled them very well. And so I think, I think the effort was to try to have a lot more education in these healing modalities, but I could see how, you know, for me, I would say, like, I experienced my yoga practice as healing and, and helping me work through the traumas I've had, but it wasn't taught by someone who was trained in trauma-informed yoga, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would add, I think it's really cool that we're trying to get more hip here. And if I've been through, say, if I've been sexually assaulted, I'm probably going to want to go see a yoga practitioner who's more trauma-informed because uh, I feel a little more seen there. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's, I think it's great. And I would just want that label trauma-informed to have some kind of backing. Like, yeah, I actually did some training. I know where my limit is, where mm-hmm. I need to refer you to an actual trauma therapist because I'm a yoga teacher or I'm a physical therapist or I'm a whatever, here's the line. And now it's time for you to go work with a different kind of practitioner. Oh, I like that. I think that's great. And for just backing up with your own experience of yoga, how did you, Ellen, how did you start practicing? And what was your, do you ha- did you have a moment where you felt like all of these different emotional, kind of the alchemy of movement and in your own emotional experience coming together? Oh my gosh. I, I love this question. Um, <laughs> I could like take over the whole, <laughs> I started in my early twenties just because I was, I loved movement. I loved to challenge myself with movement and, uh, God, I think I heard like Madonna was doing yoga or something. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Maybe I'll try that. Cause it was like that innocent in a way. And then I remember just feeling like I'd never been so challenged and confronted on so many levels in the, in the first class I went to, I probably went to a much more challenging class than I should have, but went to a class or? I think so. Yeah. And, and I just was, but it was so compelling because I was so, there was so much I didn't know about what was happening in my body. Like that's what I learned. And, and I wanted to know, like, I want, I want to know as much as I can about as many things as possible. <laughs> so, yeah. So that that's what was has been incredibly compelling for me about it and and then then I was starting to hit things in my life in my mid 20s where 
I was going through things emotionally and relationally, and I was coming to yoga and feeling like I was working through stuff. Like I, and that there was such a correlation between what was whatever challenge I was experiencing on the mat. And I'm like, wow, that's just like this challenge I have out in life, like a place where I'm scared or closed off or rigid or wobbly. It's so it just felt like it was a place where I could work through things in a tangible way. Cause I, I was, you know, I was learning to become a therapist and in this very abstract kind of mental, emotional world. And like yoga was a place where I, I was just grounding all that learning every day. I mean, I still feel like I am. It's so, I really need the grounding because I'm, I'm in this like imaginative world in a way and felt sense world, which I love, but it it really helps me stay oriented. And, and what do you think um, is different about yoga than another form of movement or exercise that elicits all these real emotional experiences and, and, and parallels to daily life? Oh, it's such a good question. I mean, I'm curious what you would say. I think what comes to mind is the the mindfulness, the the challenge of it, that it's not just a passive relaxation, although there, there are moments of that in yoga. Thank goodness. That's nice at the end, of course, but that it's that it takes I, I can't be in my head or th- somewhere else. I have to be really present and uh it's it's some, it's the way it kind of harnesses the mind. I think that it allows me to just experience what's happening on a felt sense level sensations and, and even emotions without the story or my ideas really getting in the way. It just, it's very raw in that way. And so I think that, and I've done other things I've done Pilates and I've, I've tried a lot of things that are lovely for, you know, the body, but I, I yoga has really what feels like it takes me the deepest into my own experience. So, yeah. And she's, I mean, when I first, when we first started getting together many years ago, um, we, you know, sleepovers, of course, were part of the program and she woke up morning. I think it was like the first or second morning. And she's, it's like five in the morning at four 30. And she was like, see ya. And I was like, what? She was going to yoga. And I was like, are you kidding me? And anyway, that, but it was also really inspiring. I was like, God, this woman is committed. And since that day, I mean, I haven't seen you like, she's just, like well, a force there's been pregnancies and babies sure, and things. But, there was like five mm-hmm. years in there where it was a little kind of hit or miss, but yeah, but yeah there's a strong thread. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I agree with you. I think that um, it, sometimes it's, it's unclear why it's so different, but sometimes even the, it sounds so simple, but just a mat as this almost marker, even though you don't have to practice on a mat, but it's like, it's almost Pavlovian. You know, you go there and your attention is harnessed in a way that when you're running or doing something else, you might be attentive, but there's just a lot more. Almost your thoughts tend to go faster when you're like, almost like you're sorting through your brain sometimes when you're doing other forms. And here, I feel like it just, it's not like your brain stops, but it's really clarified to be here, be there in a way Um and I, I almost think that mat becomes that association with it, that we just automatic somatically like think, okay, now I get to clear everything. Yeah. I, I, like I can't be anywhere else. I'll, I'll get hurt or something, but, if yeah. I do, but it, it is, it, I think it does start to have an association that's powerful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now in your relationship school, how do you bring in, do you bring in a physical practice 
Um, do you bring in a breath practice? What kind of things do you, what tools do you use without giving, I mean, it's a year long school, so you're not going to give too much away, but what did you decide that was going to be useful in addition to the talking and the maybe journaling or whatever? I'd love to hear some of the tools that you have really discovered are powerful for people to have. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple that, that stand out maybe in this moment that I could share. And no, we don't have a physical practice other than it's a bit of a meditation. And it's, I call it the Nestor meditation, N-E-S-T-R. And we hold, we do this Nestor, I teach this minute Nestor meditation, basically so people can hold and be with their experience. Because so much of where relationships break down is the inability or unwillingness to be with your experience under stress between us in conflict, for example. And most people just don't know how, they've never been taught their parents told them, you you know, feelings are bad or whatever. And so they don't know how to be with themselves. And so especially under stress, it's very uncomfortable on a sensory emotional level. Mm-hmm. So the Nestor meditation is uh, stands for five things. They're number, emotion, sensation, thought, and resource. And so you just, you just quietly go in for five minutes and you check off the list there and you try to identify what's my number on a scale of zero to 10 and being super triggered very activated sympathetically, zero being I'm calm, cool, and collected, and I, I'm available for connection. So we label the number, then we go to emotion, sad, happy, glad. We just put a label on it. And then a sensation, am I feeling hot, cold, sweating, achy, tense in my knee, you know, whatever. And then um, uh, thought, where's my mind? What am I thinking about? What's the chatter? And then R is a resource. Where, I'm, let's say I'm a seven, where in my body do I feel okay? Like a zero or a one. And usually there's a resource. And so we teach that. And a lot of our coaches now work with clients doing the Nestor. And we train our clients and students just to like, this is part of the program. When you get triggered, like sit down and just be with yourself before you act out. And that's, that saves a lot of drama, I think. Mm-hmm. So that's one of our big ones. And then there's another listening tool that I could share if you, if you want. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I love that. I'm a huge lover of acronyms. I just, I think they're amazing because they, I just love, I mean, if you listen to my podcast, everybody's like, oh my God, they'll write down and they'll send me because I, you know, as some of that is like medical background, there's a ton of acronyms, but it's also easier to remember. And then it like becomes like part of that cellular memory. You like literally have it written down and you can check it off like that. And I love that that's five minutes because that's so doable. And that's so like, I think anybody can start to, and, and it also is directive. Like sometimes if you sit, to be quiet or meditative, it actually makes you, like you said, more anxious or something, or it could be that. And you're also able to identify that, but then direct it to the next thing on the list. Yeah. So take me through the other, the visual. Yeah. So the the other one, um, really, I learned this to set context here from just being a bad listener with Ellen um, in conflict. Okay. My husband, listen carefully. (laughs) No, just kidding. We all have... I. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> this one's called uh, Lufu, L-U-F-U. And I, I realized after a number of years of defending myself in conflict that that wasn't getting anywhere. It took me years, you know, that slow sometimes. And We were chipping away. We were chipping yeah. away. <laughs> but she kept saying, no, you don't understand. I'd be like, yes, I do. And she was talking about herself. And I'm arguing with her whether I understand her or not. It's just like silly. So I finally made a rule for myself that I said, okay, I'm not going to understand you until you say you feel understood. That's my rule. That's my new rule. So 
L-U-F-U stands for listen until they feel understood. Mm. And there's a number, there's eight steps involved, but it's essentially a way of getting present. It's a presence practice really is, okay, I'm going to turn my attention toward you, Mm. even though I'm triggered and upset, and I'm going to put all of my effort into trying to understand you. And I'm not going to quit until you let me know that you feel understood. And that could take two days, two weeks, an hour, two minutes. Hopefully, Hopefully it's (laughs) pretty quick. Um, and that's been, that was, that was huge for me. And then, you know, I've added different things to it over the years, but, um, that was initially huge. And we teach that to all our students and they, there's just, uh, it's amazing that people become different listeners for life, uh, when they practice for nine months, this tool, um, because a lot of it's involving validation, um, really trying to get their world, some reflective listening in there, some active listening, interrupting someone, wait, let me make sure I'm with you. A number of steps that have the, the talker, the speaker feel really like, gosh, you're actually paying attention. You really are committed to knowing what is going on with me. And it is like listening in an embodied way. Like, I don't, I think that that's, this is where like including the body matters. Like how's the listener even what's, what am I picking up on? What am I feeling and sensing in myself and from you? And there's room to explore all that because if if we're just Mm -hmm. doing things from our head, like listening and speaking, we're not we're not actually helping each other understand each other better. We really need to use more of our just human capacities to, to feel and to express and to sense. And so I think it brings all of that in, in a way that's just, that has steps that's like easy to follow if you're new to that. Yeah. When I was reading what, some of what you said on your website, I loved how you said, we're just like big kids moving through the world. We've brought all these different experiences, good and bad. And we're sorting through them. And, and don't you feel like as therapists that in a way you almost have to do that, not in a vacuum, but in a relationship of any kind, not just your partner, but it, it's through the relationship that you're going to be able to navigate and move past some of your like habitual tendencies. You know, like I had habitual tendency. I disliked conflict. I had a wonderful childhood. I don't remember a lot of conflict, but I think that's part of it is that I, when somebody would yell or raise their voice, or there would be some, you know, I wanted to be liked, I would just be like, I'm out of here. Like that was literally the reflex. And then I brought that into my relationships. It's like, I'm always going to break up with you because you know what? I'm done. Can't handle this. And one of the best things that someone said to me, and it was actually out of this men's group that her husband was going through is like, when you get married, the back door is shut meaning you can't flee. And I was like, oh shit, <laughs> really? <laughs> I was like, this is going to be good for me because I'm going to have to stay and be uncomfortable and then deal with it. But I'm one, like, I don't know if I, you know, if I didn't have that relationship, if I would have been able to kind of um, evolve and mature. So my first question is, do you think you can do this as an individual only? And then I have a second follow-up to that, but I'm going to first let you an- um answer this one. Yeah. I mean, we could talk a lot about this one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can learn a lot as an individual and then, but it's like when the rubber meets the road is when you get into relationship. So it's sort of like, I mean, yeah, I, I just think that it's, you can, you can always work on yourself. You can always learn, you can read, you can do that, but it is when you're in intimate relationship, when things start to get hard, like 
that's, I think that's where like the real time learning happens. Cause you really have to go through a new experience of yourself doing something different to have it, to, to be able to integrate it. It, it might, you might have a nice idea of how you're going to do things in the future, but it's, it's really the actual doing of it that creates mm-hmm. the new capacity. Yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. I was uh, in a meditation community for a number of years and, you know, oh, yeah. we just all had a bunch of relationship problems, but we were great. Just nine hours a day of sitting <laughs> practice. Like, Hey, I got this. Uh, I mean, that, that was incredibly challenging though, of course. And yeah. I had to confront layers of myself on the cushion that I, I don't know what else could touch. It was so awesome and confronting. It's like a Vipassana retreat or something. Right. Yeah. Um, but then I would come home. It's like Jack Kornfield says, I'd come home and like my relationship problems, would still be there. So I, I think there's just some things that, that have to be worked through relationally and intimate partnership in particular and any high stake relationships, but particularly the, the intimate partnership, I think is the, the most difficult and the most confronting because it just starts to bring up everything from our history because uh, our attachment system fires and um, yeah, there's just, we can't escape that. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And so my second question is, I see this a lot and and my husband's always joking, like, you don't want to put this in your marketing, which is that when people go through my training or they are with me for a while, or they go through a retreat, I have predominantly women who all of a sudden they've been working on themselves, all this stuff is coming up and, and they're all like, I don't, I don't really want to be with my husband anymore. <laughs> you know, like I'm evolving, I'm doing all this stuff. And I mean, it could, it could be men, women, but my experience, again, I've had predominantly women and it's, I'm just, I'm never surprised, but I'm just, it, it happens. It's just it's happened very recently. Somebody's like, you know, I'm, I just, my husband doesn't like this new me and he, we, we aren't getting along. What do you do when someone is evolving and changing and they come to you and say like, my partner is just not into me changing this way. And this is really bringing up a lot of relationship issues. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think this is common. And uh, the person that's into growth and development, whether it's through yoga or through meditation or through psychotherapy or personal growth retreats or whatever, can and does outgrow the other person. If the other person doesn't mobilize and go, okay, yeah, wow, I see that you're on the move and this is good for us. I want to come along for the ride. But often it's perceived as a threat. It's scary. Um, to see you change. I mean, any anyone that's ever gone home over the holidays that is growing sees the seduction to go back into your family patterns and behave like a 17-year-old again. Um, we all have that experience and it's it's uncomfortable and it's painful. And that's that's what starts to happen in a relationship. And and unconsciously, I think the system, the old system wants to keep you where you have been. And there, there's a real gravity. Uh, seduction to go back into who you were, which is why I, I'd love to say it's so important you surround yourself with people who are on the move also so that you can kind of yeah. support and challenge each other to, to evolve to the next place. But yeah, it's yeah. relationships end here. Yeah, totally. They do. And I could see that happening in your trainings where like now people have a community of growth oriented people, like let's, let's develop ourselves and, you know, physically and mentally and relationally and all of that starts happening through yoga training. And if you're really on a growth path and then, yeah, the partners, you know, this happens in grad school too. People come into 
graduate school where we went and married and they, a lot of them don't make it or committed partnerships because someone just really is on the move to grow. And the other person gets to decide, like, is that, is that the, what I want to do? Is that the kind of relationship I want? Do I like where this is going? And that those two things don't always line up. Yeah. And I might add that I have plenty of people who also say their relationships have gotten much better. So I don't want to act like it's just because yeah. it's in general, I yeah. think that does happen. That, that it, yeah, that happens much more. People will say they have become better parents, they become better spouses, and by becoming better, that improves the whole lot. But it's also it also is sad to see when people are growing and their partner is uncomfortable because it is no longer the status quo, and also probably unwilling to, like you said, move. Yeah. Yeah. And, and see yeah. the benefits of, wow, you've brought some really cool new stuff in here. This is, this is good for us. Like, that's great when that happens. But yeah, yeah if, if they're not wanting anything to change, then no, it's, it is going to feel threatening, the changes. And just one more thing to say on this, that sometimes people start to feel empowered and they, they sort of like reject pretty quickly their former life. And I, I just think those people need to slow down a little bit. And it's like, well, hold on. Have you given this person a chance? And have mm-hmm. you actually thrown the kitchen sink at this thing or or are you just now newly empowered and and your husband's wrong or whoever's wrong uh sometimes i see i see that happen too mm-hmm. and i just encourage people to go slow and and now that you're with your newfound awareness can you bring that in and, and actually give it a timeline and put some effort in in a new way see what happens yeah and don't you think it's also really so important to acknowledge that this move i love that you use that term like you're on the move it's never done I mean, I don't, cause I don't think we're ever going to be like, Hey, I'm always, you know, responsive and attentive and listening and loving. And I've got my shit together. Like, I think it's, I kind of talk about this in the movement. It's like, you're never really done. It's not that we're imperfect, but we, we should be changing. We should be evolving. Totally. Yeah. There's always, there's always more to, more to integrate really. It's like, it's like imagining you'd always be a neutral pelvis. Like maybe that's just, that's a fantasy. <laughs> it's like always going to be lined up. Like there's, you know, there's, you have to reset. You have to like, we have some, a, a stronger baseline to come back to. We have more resources. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that it's, there isn't any like yeah. one and done. There's here. no, no summits, a lot of false summits. A lot false of, summits the heat, yeah. We're up against our hedonism, right? Which is we want more pleasure than pain and oh, cool, just around the next corner after this yoga workshop or this relationship school thing, I'm good. And it's like, no, life is just going to show you where your next challenge yeah. and your next lesson is. Right. I see this a lot in yoga in you know, getting into handstand, for instance, this kind of like quick desire to hit. <laughs> Don't worry, you're not, everybody wants it. It's like, because you get a little feeling of the fun of it and the joy and this, I, I think it is somehow like eliciting this like childhood whimsical it just is freeing it's different it's joyful and playful and so you it's it's it is very addictive for people to try try it and try it and then they're like well when am i going to get then then they realize like when am i going to get it and i'm like when it comes like you just and isn't it fun that it kind of takes a while because how interesting would it be if you just got it right and i i think it's such a great metaphor for the way we need to be in our lives as parents and as partners and you know, that we're going to, I always say, you know, you wake up the next day and you have, you, you have the ability to try, try harder. If you really, if you had a, you know, a fuck up day, it's okay. Like the other thing is that I think, and I would love your opinion about apologies. 
because my husband and I will sometimes debate this because he'll be like quoting Brene Brown or something about apologies and saying sorry. And for me, it's like, it took, I don't want to say it took me a while to be able to apologize kind of more freely, but I, I do, I pride myself on the fact that it doesn't take me as long. And then sometimes he'll be like, well, is the apology really, it is, I, I would love to hear your take on like, how important it is to say like, you know, I wasn't my best self today. I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm sure it really, you know, might've hurt you or bugged you, or I, I'm just struggling with some other stuff. Like, do you think that's enough? Or is that just kind of like too much of a, like I'm getting away with something and I'm. <laughs> we were just kind of debating this a little bit the other day. Yeah. Um, I'm a, I'm a more of a non-apology person. I think they're wrote and overused the vast yeah. majority of the time. Yeah, I mean, the average person apparently apologizes eight times a day. And, you know, I'm, it's good to learn the social grace of, hey, bumping into some of the store, I'm sorry, or, you know, that, and it's good to teach children that it's cool. It's a good, good thing to know. And it, it, in my experience, it doesn't settle the nervous system in the way that people use it for. Uh, the nervous system to me needs a lot more, which is I need, you know, with two people, it's like, if I hurt Ellen's feelings, um, it actually does work for you for me to lead with an apology sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'm learning. Mm-hmm. And ownership. Yes, I did do that. I raised my voice. I was a jerk. And I can see how that impacted you. And, you know, there's there's just more layers for her to start letting down and letting down and letting down. And empathy yeah. is another huge one. So apologies, again, good to know, but uh, more is needed in my experience. I like that. Yeah, I, I think it is a good skill to be able to just look at someone and say, I'm sorry. I, I think we should all be able to humble ourselves in that way, to the, especially the people we love and care most about. And then, uh, but not in like a, it, but it doesn't, if it's not genuine, it doesn't mean anything, right? And I, I think what Jason's saying is to add on the, like, I see the impact over there. Like, kind of like you were saying, Laura, like, I know I was hard to be around today. And I'm sure that wasn't fun for you. And I care about you. Or I, I see that thanks for just not, you know, dishing it back out to me or whatever it is to just, I think any mm-hmm. acknowledgement sometimes and ownership is, I think that means a lot to the people that live with us and depend on us. Yeah. And I, I, I hear both of you and I agree with both of you. Cause like Jason, I, one thing I do work a lot with women on I say women because I do think women over-apologize, and I think some of that is cultural. And so people will be teaching, and they'll be like, uh, left leg, oh, no, I'm sorry, I meant right. And I was like, you don't need to say you're sorry. Like, that's a reflexive thing. Just be like, oops, right leg. You know, just, you know, just don't make it, be, and it, it, because when you, like, watching your words is becoming like a pattern. And so I do see women reflexively say that, and I think it is diminishing their power in some way. And it's been, again, I think it's condition, it's a little bit conditioning, but I'm talking about the real sincere, like for me, it means a lot if my husband's like, oh, I'm really sorry. I, I was so impatient today. Like that really lands that it's like an acknowledgement. And it is because he probably doesn't do it all the time. Like if he did it all the time, it probably wouldn't, wouldn't be sincere, but when he does, I feel like, oh, okay, you know what? Because I'm like the fastest to be like, hey, no big deal. But it's like sometimes until I hear that, I feel like my, I'm like, come, you know, I want, it's almost like I'm gritting and I'm like waiting for it. And I think it is. Maybe it doesn't have to be like, I'm sorry. It could be just like, hey, I was really struggling today and I've been short tempered. 
but he will surprise me sometimes and like text me and be like, I'm really sorry. I was really quick with, and I, I just, uh, this was happening. I had just talked to my mom or something. And I immediately, it's like dissipate everything. I'm no longer holding and it's just a quick thing and it really, it really lands. So I, yeah, yeah. I, I would totally yeah, agree with that. That so, goes a long way. There's another example of just, we just need to get to know our person and what works for them. Mm-hmm. Oh, beautiful. I think that's it. Because yeah, for some people, an apology wouldn't be enough. <laughs> right. Like they want to see change. Like if you're just apologizing, but you're, that change is not there, then yes. Yeah. I think that's great. Like everybody's different. I think that's a beautiful thing to acknowledge. And that is what's so wickedly challenging, but also delicious about being in a relationship is that we, we have to respect our partner enough to realize like what their needs are might be, and often are very different than our own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Needs, values, so many ways of being, what settles their nervous system. Mm -hmm. There's so many things. Yeah. Yeah. So how long have you been doing this work together and how does that in a personal (laughs) How does that work? I mean, like you're working on major stuff here about relationships. I'm imagining it is impacting your own relationship in so many positive ways. How has it been challenging and how long have you been doing it? Yeah, we've been at it since um, 2003. So 17 years. Well, our relationship, relationship. we've been married since 2003. Or together, dating. We started dating in 2003. But I, I feel like we started off just getting real and getting into conflict very early on and having long conversations. And she, we were both, you know, she was training to be a therapist. I was training to be a therapist. I was a couple of years behind her in grad school. So much and processing. I felt like we would go in circles a lot and take hours and sometimes mm-hmm. days to figure our shit out. And over time, we just got more efficient and we would, we were working with people. So then we would share that with people we were learning. We were studying, of course, this stuff with our mentors. And I, I think over time we, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. we're always learning. It's like yeah. a dojo. And know? we, you know, we have, I think that, yeah, at home, we're all like, when we get stuck, we're, it's like, we need to, if we figure something out, we're like, oh my gosh, we want to share this with people. Or yeah. we're into, we're trying to practice everything we learn. Like, does that work for us? How would we change that? So we're, because we're both into that, it's easy to kind of bring stuff to each other and be like, what if, what if we tried this? Or trying to understand what's happening here. Yeah. But also Jason really, I think because we're, you know, the relationship school really came out of him and it it was very informed by our relationship, but it's like, we've gotten to really kind of customize our roles in it. So I think there's something nice about you. You know, we have some things that are shared within the relationship school, but really, you know, you get to have a lot of autonomy in there and I get to come in and do the things I really love. And so I, I think there's just something about the way it's all come together that has allowed us to have some balance Yeah. Um, where I saw my private practice. Like we still have, we have our places that are really ours and then we have overlap. And so I think that's really nice too, mm-hmm. who we are. I, I would agree. I, I don't, I don't remember a time where it's been like, oh man, this is the worst being married, married to a therapist or God, <laughs> I can't believe I signed up for this. It's been awesome. It's been like yeah, pretty much really awesome the whole good. time. And I, I just, we just went through something hard recently and, um, I feel like we, I got smarter and stronger through it. And now it's like, I even included it in my book recently and, uh, you know, just a, a slice of it. Yeah, was, I, mean, I wasn't kind of getting for mm-hmm. 15 fucking years. Yeah. And now I'm like, Oh God, that's what he wanted. Oh, that's what we're doing now. He's like, let me write about that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so. Oh, that's amazing. So is this a new book? 
Yeah, it'll be out in the fall of 2021. I just yeah. turned in my manuscript uh, two days ago. Yay! Celebration. That's incredible. What's the name of the book? Uh, I'm not Can sure. you reveal it or not yet? Oh, I'm not going to quite reveal it yet, but we're pretty close. I think it's the title is the title, but we'll see. I still have many rounds of edits and things to go. Yeah. So my next question is, I mean, I could talk with you guys forever. This is so, um, yeah, so fun. But in terms of relationships with children, because I think, um, you know, from the reading I've done and just my own experience, there are real turbulent times when you have kids because your own, you know, you're two different individuals having two different opinions in, in many ways, even if you have shared values about how you know, parenting should go and all of that. And I feel like a lot of this shit comes up with parenting that in my experience, and I feel like there's a peak to it. And like now we definitely, and you know, we've been married. Um, we've been together 22 years, almost 20 years of marriage. And I feel, and I do think marriage is, I think it's really safe to say and important to say that there are peaks and valleys in a marriage, just like there are in life. And hopefully you're growing towards, you know, more, more, more and more of the peaks. And I feel like we definitely are, but I think some of it has been navigating some of the tougher times, like the preteen, um, adolescent times where more of our differences in parenting styles came to light. So my question is, how much of that do you bring into the relationship um, school, or is it primarily just about the, the primary relationship that you're in? Yeah. I feel like we're, because we're parents, people get, um, we weave in parenting a lot, but we're not Mm -hmm. like teaching a parenting class, right? Mm -hmm. Right. We're saying, get your own shit together. um, Learn how to do conflict with your partner, people that are important to you in your life. And it's going to rub off on your kids. And that's, that's what our students say is like, holy shit, my, my parenting has completely gone to the next level in terms of my kids feel seen by me now. They feel understood by me now. The conflicts, you know, they're, we move through them faster uh, so I think a parent's own development and maturity goes a long way. Mm-hmm. And that's, that seems to be what happens here. Yeah. And I, I also think you're saying like, that's that parenting can stress a relationship, that it's, it can be one of the kind of real sticking points for couples is just their different views mm-hmm. or just all the decisions you, and complex things that might come up in your kids' lives that you have to relate to and figure out how to respond to and guide them through. And I, I mean, I think that that's, we spend a lot of time in our relationship talking about our kids and our parenting. Mm-hmm. That's, that's actually a big part of what yeah. we spend time on. Like yeah. we, on our dates, we're like, okay, let's get the kids stuff out of the way. And then we can we focus on the vessels. Like we have, <laughs> we do the same thing. Yeah. We start yeah. with that. Right. Cause yeah. it's such a high value to both of us, our family and how our relationships are with our kids and each other. And, and sometimes we have a lot more to unpack there. And, and sometimes we don't, but I think that, it is just in a way it's like another area where a couple is hopefully learning how to really understand each other to like, if I can really understand where Jason's coming from and why he feels the way he does based on his life experience, how he was parented, like what went well, what didn't, if I can really get that and he can really get that about me, we can usually come to something that feels Mm -hmm. like it somehow honors both of our perspectives or we're like, okay, yeah, you take that. That's like your issue with but you're going to be so much better at that than me. Or <laughs> like, yeah. right, you know, we can right. figure something out, but sometimes it does take time to get to that layer of understanding where I can really respect where he's coming from and where I feel really understood. 
and appreciated for where I'm coming from. But that's, that's really like with any issue, mm-hmm. that's where we want people to get to. Now, the other thing, um, just kind of piggybacking off this idea of parenting, and I don't want to say there's a hierarchy, but how, if you were to express it now, like how important do you think it is? Like take care of your partner first and not that obviously little kids don't need it, but you know, I just, this is bringing back. I remember when I think I was pregnant and I heard Dr. Phil, who I'm not saying is somebody we should all aspire to be like or, or listen to, but I, he just would say funny things. And he said, you know, your partner your, is number one. And he said, you need to say to your kids sometimes, don't knock on that door unless there's a fire because I'm in here with my wife or whatever. You know, not like they're necessarily having sex, but they're having there. It's clear, like my time with my partner is important and you guys, it's outside of you. And I remember thinking like, wow, that's interesting. Um, but how, how important is that to, to feel like, you know, my partner's needs in the hierarchy really ultimately are the top. And of course, we need to also take care of our kids. And in some ways, people have reversed that. And I'm wondering the impact of that in the partnership. Of course, a lot of people don't feel seen by their partner because they're only paying attention to their kids. Again, it's not a hierarchy, but how how do you advise on that in, 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 the, in the lens of a relationship, but recognizing how much you love your kids and you know, value them? You want me to start? start. Okay. Well, fill in gaps. I I mean, it's cool. It's like, okay, where do I take a stand on that? And I, I think that like you're saying for me, it's not like black and white that some, like if Jason comes first, if our relationship, let's say comes first, then that could look like a lot of things. And I, I think that's a good mentality to have because a partnership is really the home for the whole family. Like it's our relationship that's holding all of us. And so if if I think of it that way, then I'm going to attend to my partner in our relationship, hopefully in a way that honors that most of the time. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to just take my feelings out on this guy or when I'm exhausted because I've been parenting all day, like he he just deserves nothing. Like, you know, it's just like, you have to, I want, I want myself to be thinking about like, how do I really nurture this relationship because it is so easy, especially when kids are little to feel like, dude, you got yourself like, cause I, I just gave everything <laughs> for, you know, right. years to the little ones and, and kids are so compelling and they're so interesting and there's so much happening with them. It, it is so easy to lose track of us or each other. And so I think just the orientation of mm-hmm. we, we have to prioritize our relationship, which, you know, for us is like, we have a weekly date. we, check in every night and every morning. Like we, we just have these touchstones where we really make sure we have time for each other that isn't just about to talk about parenting. May I ask real quickly, when you, ha- when you say you have these touchstones, is it literally like, how, how are you doing or how is your day or what's your day going to be like? Or is it something more emotional than that? <laughs> I, I, it's, it's not very structured, but yeah. it just, it's so consistent for us. It's kind of morning, noon, and night where it's just a check-in, a touch-in. Especially um, now that we're home so much. Yes. Right. <laughs> I used to leave, we used to leave each other voice notes yeah. throughout the day. Like, hey, what's the headline? What's up? What are you yeah, doing? Yeah, like we check in a lot. Um, she'll give me a report on the kids after school or something. Uh, and at night, we're usually sort of debriefing the day. Um, and that often includes a kid section. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Report. Yeah. 
but we, you know, we don't need a lot. We're pretty good at communicating, checking in with each other. So I don't think we need a lot of structure. Like we know when we need like to check in around a bigger thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, but it mostly is just like, I want to get a read on you and where you're at and what do you need today or just, yeah. I think the big thing for us is the other partner needs to feel like a priority. That's kids, true. no kids, like whatever. That's what I'm getting to in terms of not, I didn't want to say hierarchy, but like you're not just left over. And if I have some, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And feeling like a priority, that's feeling a little different for each of us. Like yeah. what has me feel like a priority might be different for someone else. Yeah. And so that's. Yeah, that's yeah I would add two things just to say it differently. Um, we see ourselves as like the master regulators of our household. So if our, if we're dysregulated because we're in conflict or one of us is having a rough moment in life, um, we attend to that because we know it's better for our kids. We don't tolerate being disconnected very long and off uh, because our kids lean into our, you know, uh, nervous systems really uh, mm-hmm. so that they can just go live their lives and they don't have to be preoccupied or mom and dad okay or mom and dad okay or mom and dad okay that's just not a story our kids have and then we also argue in front of our kids when necessary like mm-hmm. we don't we're like no hold on we're thank god because <laughs> yeah, i would like, say in the middle of an argument <laughs> yeah well i also want them to see conflict and then resolution and and to not have conflict would feel really weird and not be real life and then right. they don't get it's the modeling life. and like the modeling that we each have a, that like we share our power here. We each have a voice. And sometimes we, that like, we have to hash stuff out, you know, and yeah. we're fair to each other in front of them. And I think even not in front of them, like we've learned how to not like go after each other, but like we, they definitely, if you ask them to your parents, fight, they'd be like, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, amen. Because I think that that would be such a weird, and my husband and I early on would talk about this because his parents were like, never brought anything up in front of the kids. And I'm like, well, that's weird because that's not real. There's going to be stuff. What you want to leave them with is that you're going to, and, and, you know, I'm sure you guys say this and, you know, you, we're going to have fights with people that you love and, and you got to move through it and figure it out and then, and, and resolve it. But to just go away in a, in a back room and, and talk about it, it's not giving them any of the lessons either. Yeah. And that's totally. us leading with our shame because we're embarrassed about how we're showing up in a relationship as adults. And, you know, that's understandable if you never learned how. It, it does feel shameful sometimes if you're like, shit, I'm, I just, I have no clue how to fix this. And my kids are like watching it all day long. <laughs> but then that should be motivation to go do something about yeah. it. Right. I love that. I love that. Well, I could talk with you guys forever, but I want to le- le- um, leave this with a little bit more information about your school. Cause I know so many listeners are going to be like, I want to sign up for this school. So how does it work? Is it ongoing or is it like a start place? And then we can't join in until the next start. Yeah. Good question. Thanks. Um, so the podcast is a great place. It's a great resource. It's called the relationship school just on Spotify or iTunes or Apple podcasts. I guess it is now. Um, so that's a good place for just tons and tons of free resources. We've interviewed hundreds of people on intimacy, sex, love, attachment, connection, you know, you name it, conflict. And um, if they wanted to come get on our email list or check out a training, um, yeah, we launch twice a year. We do these schools that are now nine months long. We have a two-day event on conflict coming up November 12th through the 15th. It might be after this gets recorded. Uh, that's a virtual event where you just learn how to work through conflict. Um, but probably the easiest place, Laura, to, to go is relationshipschool.com. And then if you go forward slash training, you can get, you can sign up for one of our free webinars that we've got going on. Beautiful. 
Oh, well, I hope everybody does that because I think that you all, you have so much to offer and I just love your vibe. Even though I'm not with you, I just sense um, that everyone would, everyone needs this training. It's like when I talk about the body, I'm always kind of astounded. We went through all these years and don't, uh, don't know the names of, you don't have to know the names of all the muscles, but just that we're walking around in this vehicle and we're just unfamiliar with kind of what its capabilities are. And it's, it's similar to behavior and emotions. We're not getting this education in school. And in fact, probably we're getting de-educated on how to regulate our emotions and how to manage them and how to express them well and, and all of those things. So um, it's never too late though, right? We can do it as big, big kids. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we've got all late. ages in our trainings yeah. for sure. Totally. I love that. Well, ongoing, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And um, I know I'm going to join that school. Because I, I want to always improve in my relationship and um, my husband. I already told him about it. I was like, I told him all about you guys. So we'll be joining the next time. Yeah. Laura. Thanks for Thank you so much. Yeah. It's thanks for what you're doing too. too. You're, we're all benefiting. Well, thanks. I know. I love seeing you guys doing. I loved how you posted the other day. Keep doing that as well. Taking my lit class. As a family, I love it. And for everybody out there, as always, thanks for listening and know that I'm pulling for you. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.